Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva. I'm particularly excited about today's guest, Roland Elliott Brown, the author of Godless Utopia, Soviet Anti-Religious Propaganda. This is a fascinating look at the virulent anti-religious campaign perpetrated by the Soviet government almost from the outset of the Bolshevik seizure of power in 1917. This is an aspect of Soviet history that I believe has yet to receive the full attention that it deserves. It's a fascinating microcosm of the psychological and social and political pressures the state was able to galvanize in their efforts to eradicate religious belief from the hearts and minds of the vast ethnic uh, and multi-confessional Russian empire, which at that time covered more than 15% of the Earth's landmass. This was a huge undertaking, to be sure, and one that succeeded rather well until it didn't. Roland has taken a very fresh and innovative approach to examining this period, putting the vibrant and evocative propaganda posters so central to the Bolshevik efforts to persuade and recruit a predominantly illiterate population to their cause. I think that students of the Russian Revolution know how key these graphic designs were, and even those with only a passing knowledge of the era will immediately recognize the bold colors and images from these vital propaganda posters. I think it's particularly interesting to read and consume Godless Utopia today when the Russian Orthodox Church has regained so much of its proximity to power that it enjoyed under the czars. So that's a ton of us for to discuss with Roland, and I think we should just dive right in and welcome Roland to the podcast. Hi, Roland. Hi there. Thanks very much for having me. We're delighted to have you. Um, And before we get into the meat of our discussion, Why don't you take us through the motivation for writing this book? I should say writing, but so much of it is visual. Um, This is a fascinating topic, and I'm wondering how you first became interested in doing the book. The subject really seized me, uh, but it occurs to me that we're not always completely transparent to ourselves in our interests. And in fact, even when I was well into uh, working on the book and had already written the first draft, I had to uh, interrogate myself as to my motives in writing the book in order to be able to proceed and, uh, and to uh, establish uh, a narrative thread that I'd be happy with. And uh, I was living in Leytonstone in East London at the time. I used to go for long night walks uh, around Epping Forest and uh, think about how the writing was going and thinking where I needed to take things. And, um, yeah, I began questioning my, my own motives and uh, thinking about how, how I'd become conscious of this subject. And uh, the first thing that occurred to me was that I'd grown up in North America during the, the very last days of the Cold War in the Reagan era, um, I was born in uh, 1980, uh, so I was not particularly conscious of this stuff at the time. But um, you know, in 1983, Ronald Reagan put uh, Lenin's atheism uh, at the center of Soviet unfreedom in his famous "Evil Empire" speech. Uh, that same year, Alexander Solzhenitsyn blamed atheism for all of Russia's catastrophes in his um, his "Men Have Forgotten God" speech at the London Guildhall. And uh, so this subject was in, it was in the atmosphere when I was very young. Um, Later on, uh, I would say that reading, reading Orwell in high school, reading uh, Animal Farm and encountering 
uh, Orwell's very good paraphrase of the the Marxist take on religion in, in Animal Farm through the the character of uh, Moses the Raven, who represents mm. the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, that was the first little bit of anti-religious satire I'd, I'd ever encountered. And a, and a very powerful one, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, Orwell uh, seems to use uh, the rejection of religion as, as the signifier of true and authentic revolution in that novel. Mm. And you begin uh, the book with with uh, Animal Farm, and I think that's a wonderful entry to the whole the whole subject. Yeah, I mean, I think it was probably that it was probably on that night walk that I decided that Orwell's really a good way in because uh-huh. uh, because he's widely read, and uh, most people have at least a vague memory of Moses the Raven and, and his <laughs> flight from Animal Farm and his return once mm-hmm. the revolution's betrayed. Right, uh, but I mean, it's a very—it's quite a Marxist. It's a Marxist reading of the of the Russian Revolution, and it was um, and it was written in the the nineteen forties, uh, around the time of Stalin's uh, rapprochement with the Church, mm. uh, wartime rapprochement with the Church. Uh, so it's it's very much of its time. Mm-hmm. And l- that sort of takes us to the end of of the the prehistory that you helpfully uh, begin with, because I think um, for many people coming to your book as art historians or cultural uh, historians may not be as familiar as familiar with the details of the history of the church uh, in Russia. And I wonder if just for our discussion, you could kind of trip very lightly over the milestones. Um, it's a thousand year history. It's very interesting, and you kind of give us a really punchy, succinct, uh, introduction. Uh, if you could sort of encapsulate that for listeners, I think that'd be very helpful for the rest of this, the discussion. One thing I came to understand while I was researching the history of Soviet atheism and also looking at, uh, the graphics that were going to appear in the book was how high context they were. Uh, they were made for domestic consumption and you, you're expected to understand, uh, quite a lot about Russian history uh, in order to understand them. And uh, so I think the reader needs that as well. So what I did was to uh, take a kind of breakneck look at Russian history and, and look at episodes which had some parallels with the Soviet atheist project. Uh, uh, I began with the 12th century primary chronicle, uh, a medieval document which tells the story of the foundations of Christianity in ancient Rus. And there are some parallels between the foundation of Christianity in ancient Rus and the way the Bolsheviks approached uh, demolishing uh, the old order. Uh, so, for example, the primary chronicle tells of how uh, Prince Vladimir of Kiev, uh, wanting to uh, establish closer relations with Constantinople, uh, baptizes the people of Rus at sword point and smashes their pagan idols and says that anyone who refuses baptism uh, will be his enemy. Uh, moving further along through Russian history, you have the, the enormous trauma of the, the Mongol invasion, which in its early stages is uh, it's a story of uh, devastation and and desecration, uh, which focuses on on the destruction of churches and monasteries and clergy. Uh, although uh, 
fairly early on, uh, the church and the Mongols make their peace and, Mm -hmm. uh, the church is able to, um, it's able, it's, uh, it's exempt from tribute, Mm. uh, unlike the princes of ancient Rus. Very interesting. uh, uh, in exchange for uh, its prayers for the, the Mongol Han. One of the consequences of the relationship between church and state under the Mongols is that uh, the church dramatically uh, expands its power, and there's, um, there's a constant sense that the Russian Orthodox Church is really what, what speaks for ancient Rus uh, as a whole. And this came to a head under the patriarch Nikon, who told... Uh, Patriarch Alex say that the church was a, a much greater thing than monarchy. Tsar uh, Alexei's uh, son, uh, Peter the Great, uh, does not care for the church at all. He's particularly independent-minded, uh, Western-looking in some ways, wants to drag Russia to face the West, and there's all kinds of... Um, there's all kinds of conflict with the church uh, under mm-hmm. the reign of uh, Peter I in the 1700s. Uh, so, for example, he uh, so for example he uh, he cuts the beards off 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 the other men at court, and he imposes a beard tax, which traumatizes the the pious peasants. Uh, he holds uh, drunken mock synods where religious symbols are are mocked. And then when the, uh, when the patriarch of the Orthodox Church uh, dies on his watch, he leaves the office empty for uh, something like 21 years. He abolishes the patriarchate, and he replaces it with uh, essentially a state religious bureaucracy, which, uh, which will report to him and which will report um, – and he plots against the state. You know, for example, Orwell refers to Moses in Animal Farm as a spy and a talebearer. Well, mm. that's, that's the origin of the church being a, a spy and a talebearer, particularly mm-hmm. a spy. And that state of affairs really goes on for centuries. The church doesn't really try and regain its independence until the year of the Russian Revolution, 1917, uh, when uh, the monarchy having fallen they uh they hold uh a church council and uh they appoint a new patriarch and uh this patriarch uh patriarch Tichon, uh is going to have to face the bolsheviks because they're seizing power uh in moscow right at the time of his election right and this this brings us to the era that you really do a deep dive into with your book. Um, and so let's, let's turn to these amazing illustrations that kind of, um, make up the whole, the whole book. I'm, I'm interested to, to take you back to your inspiration to tell the story through these, uh, sort of vibrant propaganda posters. They're from the magazine Godless, um, or two, uh, magazines, both called Godless. Um, tell us a little bit about the history of these illustrations and um, why you decided to use them. So these kind of uh, vivid revolutionary graphics can be traced back to the 1905 revolution and and even to um, even to some of the anti-clerical painting of the 19th century. 
So let's turn now to these um, amazing illustrations that really make the book come alive, as well as the story of the anti-religious campaign. I'm interested when you first encountered them and um, what their story is. I know that some of them come from uh, some atheist magazines, uh, two, in fact, but some are earlier than that. And I wondered if you take us into the story of these um, illustrations and, and your relationship with them. How did you find them and what about them excited you? Uh, so there are really two distinct periods in Soviet atheist graphics. Uh, there's one that runs from the Russian Revolution until the German invasion in 1941, after which anti-religious propaganda more or less ceases. And then there's another period which begins around 1959, uh, with Nikita Khrushchev's atheistic uh, campaign uh, and and more or less ends with Glasnost. Uh, my publisher had collected some of the later images and the initial idea for the book was to produce a collection of the later images. But uh, I was also aware of, but I was also aware of images from the the earlier period. And uh, while I was studying Russian for a month in St. Petersburg, I went to visit the library of the State Museum of the History of Religion, which was uh, formerly the State Museum of the History of Religion and Atheism in the Kazan Cathedral. And they had a full collection of uh, the early atheist magazines, Godless and Godless at the Machine. And I found so many precedents for the themes uh, you can find in the later images in the earlier images that I thought we've got to tell the whole story. So these early atheist graphics are they're a declaration of war on, on the old order. And, uh, you know, they're akin to Prince Vladimir smashing the pagan idols of, of Kiev. Um, there are some which are really meant to be uh, deliberately blasphemous, deliberately shocking. Like uh, there's one that always comes to mind. You can just hear me flipping through the book here because uh, mm -hmm. I'm looking for it so that I can uh, rest my eyes on it uh, while I describe it. It's a lithograph by the artist Dmitry Moore, who was uh, one of the main, probably the main anti-religious artist of the revolutionary period. And it shows a, a dead Jesus lying on the ground, and he's surrounded by peasants and priests who are uh, gnawing at his body and, and eating his limbs and his blood and his guts. <laughs> and uh it's it's horror movie stuff really um it's obviously a hostile take on on communion uh, -huh. uh but and it's it's not typical of of the soviet atheist art certainly of the later period which was quite conservative uh but it's very much tied to the the moment of revolution and uh the the destruction of old values and uh it comes out of a moment where anything seems possible Mm -hmm. And what might have been the reaction of of a regular Russian citizen when when he or she looked at that illustration? Uh, shock, shock and horror. Shock and horror. Yeah. Shock and horror, and also a sense of um, of probably humiliation and futility. The sense that this is produced by the party that's in charge, and there's a an implicit question underlying it, which is: if you don't like it, what are you going to do about it? That's right. Are you are you going to brave state terror to 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 decry blasphemy? Uh huh. Maybe not. Maybe not. 
Um, and you make an interesting point in the book that the Bolsheviks had veered away from classic Marxism in many different ways. Marx said that religion would simply disappear in, in an advanced society that was moving steadily towards communism. But that's not true of Russia. Is that maybe why the, these um, posters are so violent and the anti-religious campaign was so ruthless? Um, what I mean, did they have to really make more of an effort to kind of force history? Um, I think that's a fascinating part of your book. Yeah, well, I mean, Marx was a, a philosopher and someone who could turn a phrase, but he was not a, a writer of policy papers, and um, he was uh, he was more akin to a a prophet of political economy. And uh, like many prophets, he thought different things over the course of his life and wrote different things. So for example, in his uh, critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, uh, he does talk about the abolition of religion uh, being necessary for the happiness of the people. Uh, later in Capital, he takes a different line. Um, mm. But but this is what this is the legacy that, that, that he left. And uh, anyone who, who, who cares to... Um, to consider Marx's writings uh, akin to a policy paper uh, is going to have to interpret these things, right? And then the Bolsheviks interpreted them in a way that, uh, in a way peculiar to their own circumstances, uh, which were, were were those of civil war and uh, very strong opposition from the church, uh, because Patriarch Tikhon uh, anathematized the Bolsheviks very early on. Uh huh. And what was their reaction to that? Uh, violence and terror. Violence and terror. And of course, the anti-religious campaign, you, you make the point very clearly that it's not just directed towards the Russian Orthodox Church. It also is targeting Buddhism, Judaism, other confessions of the Soviet Union, to a lesser extent Islam uh, as well. How are the these minority religions affected by the anti-religious campaign? How did this play out, particularly in the far-flung corners of the Soviet Union? Well, I think the Orthodox Church was naturally the main target because it had the most influence. But some of the early anti-religious magazines, particularly uh, of the, the mid-1920s, seem to be at pains to show that there's an equal opportunity uh, opposition to religion. Uh, mm. And so you see, the, you see the figures of the major religions. You see, uh, well, there's... Uh, the gods of the major religions are portrayed. So, for example, there's an early magazine cover which shows a worker uh, climbing into the climbing a ladder into the heavens. He's armed with a hammer, and he's uh, he's climbing into the heavens above a, a city of ruined and smashed temples, and he's going to smash the gods in the heavens. And it says something like, um, "We finished with the earthly czars, and we're coming for the heavenly ones." Mm. Uh, in one image, we even found one image where there's uh, there's a cartoon of Buddha that uh, was being made fun of. Uh, so all of the major religions got it. But um, one thing that did strike me was that I didn't come across any Muhammad cartoons. Mm. And is that um, was that true of the time, or have you, have they just been sort of deep sixed because of recent events? No, I think I'd have seen them uh, uh -huh. in the libraries. Uh, uh, if they were there or if they'd been included in the magazines. I didn't find any missing pages. Uh -huh. uh, I think, uh, who knows? Uh, uh, I think it may have been a, a matter of realpolitik. Interesting. Interesting. And, uh, I mean, I, I did do some thinking as I was doing this research uh, 
as to as to what decisions would have to be made if we did come across them because uh, yeah. for the purposes of history it would have been quite legitimate to to include them in the discussion of this material um, but in our current atmosphere it also gives rise to a a debate about what risks you're you're willing to run and uh, to what extent you self-censor. And if you self-censor, obviously you've got to at least acknowledge the self-censorship. So luckily it didn't come up. Well, it sounds like the Bolsheviks did you a, a solid by not uh, having too many too many Islamic um, images in their anti-religious campaign. They do, however, have a lot um, of illustrations. I was really struck by this going through the, the book. There are a lot of um, illustrations and posters and covers that feature kind of intergenerational war, not warfare, but de- debate about religion. Um, children are are shown to be wanting to move towards the Soviet light and the older generation kind of shrinking back into the the darkness of the opium of the people. Can you kind of put this in context uh, across the the campaign years? Yeah, well, I think around 1920, Nikolai Bukharin mentions in his ABC of Communism uh, this this urgency within the party to divide children from their parents where religion is concerned. And um, I mean, there are some images relating to this question which are really cult-like. Like mm. there's one image which shows a, a darkened room and there are there are four family members, a mom, a dad, a brother, and a little girl. Uh, most of them are dressed in bright red outfits and they're cornering their mother in the icon corner. And mm. uh, the caption says, surrender, mama. <laughs> And uh, it's like it's like something out of a horror movie, or it's like it reminds you of of the kind of atmosphere that's described by people who have who have left cults, for example. And uh-huh. I mean, there is obviously a scholarship surrounding uh, Bolshevism as a millenarian movement, and uh, I mean, you can look at it as a millenarian cult, right? And and that brings us very very neatly, I think, to the fact that. Very soon after uh, that image was created, uh, the icon corner, uh, the icons come down and the pictures of Lenin and Stalin go up and there is a new cult um, of, of these leaders. What happens during the 30s in the anti-religious campaign? Yeah, it's interesting. You go from this, uh, this revolutionary moment where you have these uh, quite shocking and innovative images to a kind of more... Hmm. How to describe it? Well, it's a stage which is concerned with the Stalinist agenda of collectivization of agriculture and uh, breakneck uh, industrialization and uh, the search for spies and class enemies and uh, the the fear of war from Europe and mm. uh, resentment of uh, the Pope, who, of course, had launched a, uh, a campaign of prayer against Bolshevi- Bolshevistic atheism. And uh, in the Soviet propaganda is is shown as a mouthpiece of, of fascism. And Stalin himself had a religious training as a as a young man, did he not? Yeah. Well, every good biography of Stalin has a fascinating chapter about his his youth in the Tiflis uh, Theological Seminary. Uh, his his religious training in a in a highly regimented and tyrannical Russian empire environment. 
Uh-huh. Uh, I, for example, you can read about um, you can read about how he was uh, put in a punishment cell for reading Victor Hugo novels. Uh, <laughs> Very radical. Yeah, um, but some of it stays with him, doesn't it? And he he figures out how to use um, the the tenets of religion very effectively uh, in politics, doesn't he? Uh, historians tend to allude to it. Yeah, I mean, whether they're talking about his management of Lenin's funeral, in which, of course, mm. Lenin is uh, embalmed very much like a, a Russian saint, or uh, in the accounts of his the way in which he sidelines his enemies. Uh, within the party, treating, uh-huh. them, treating them as if they've run afoul of catechism. Uh-huh. So, so that sort of idea that there is one orthodox belief, and if you stray from it in any way, um, you are anathema. Something like that, yeah. Something like that. Oh, interesting. Um, this is also a period when there's kind of a wholesale destruction of church property and anything uh, to do with the church, including uh, monks and nuns and monasteries and religious-affiliated schools. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I think if, if listeners uh, are probably do have seen the, um, if, if not, it's on YouTube, the um, very powerful uh, film image of the explosion of the Church of Our Savior, which of course has been subsequently rebuilt in Moscow. But it's a massive um, marble cathedral that is kind of blown up. And then uh, as far as I understand, the marble is taken to line the walls of the Moscow Metro, very neat um, repurposing. But talk a little bit about this um, violence that, that is sort of unleashed as part of the anti-religious campaign. Yeah, well, certainly the lasting physical legacy of, of Soviet athe- atheism is the mass destruction of the churches in the 1930s. And you can find articles in the, in the anti-religious magazines uh, talking about closing the, the center, centers of obscurantism and counter-revolution, as they call them, uh, and either um, repurposing them or dynamiting them. And I mean, that's, uh, that's produced a, a lasting legacy and uh, you know, some of the repur- repurposed churches uh, are still uh, serving their uh, their new purposes, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, in Russia today. And the church is, uh, in many cases, trying to reclaim them. Um, How uh, are churches repurposed? How do you repurpose a church? Literally anything that it, it could be used for. Um, uh-huh. So, for example... Um, the the St. Clement's Church in Zemskvorechi in Moscow, in, in the, the south of uh, central Moscow, south of the river, uh, is a good example because it was used as a, a book depository for the Lenin Library. Right. There are all and kinds I know, of... I know one is uh, a recording studio because the acoustics are so good. Is that is that in Moscow or in St. Petersburg? In in Moscow, there's a former Anglican church called um, Saint, Saint Andrews, Andrews Saint right. Saint Andrews, uh, which was turned into the Melodia Recording Studio. Um, it's it's since been given back, uh, more or less, to the Anglican Church following a, a visit by the Queen and a decree by Yeltsin. Let's move on then to um, a very interesting part of the book, and that is the anti-religious campaign and Stalin during World War II, uh, during which we see kind of an about-face of the anti-religious campaign. Can you take us through those years uh, and what happens afterwards? Yeah, so there's an interesting contrast to observe on on opposite sides of the the date of the 
uh, German invasion uh, in June 1941. So uh, up until the invasion, you have uh, a huge amount of uh, propaganda related to uh, fascism and the Catholic Church, which are seen as uh, two faces of the, the same threat to the Soviet Union. Uh, and then anti-religious propaganda more or less ceases uh, after the German invasion. Uh, so, for example, the magazine Godless uh, closes up shop, and, uh, and that's, that's the end of the first phase of anti-religious propaganda in the USSR. Um, there are all kinds of reasons for that. Uh, the church was very active in, in rallying troops for the war effort, uh, even in raising money for tank columns. I believe there was a, a Dmitry Donskoy tank column named for the ancient Russian saints who'd, who'd helped uh, uh, defeat the, the Mongols. And, um, and, then in mm. 19, and, then in, and then in 1943, Stalin has his, his famous uh, meeting with the, the top church leaders and um, reaches an agreement whereby they're going to speak up on behalf of Soviet foreign policy, and in return, they're going to be able to reopen some churches and monasteries and seminaries, and uh, religious life is going to reestablish itself somewhat in the USSR. I feel like that's kind of an echo of of Peter the Great turning the church into a um, a sort of government department. It is in a way, although it must be said that the the real conflict between the Orthodox Church and the Bolsheviks didn't last very long mm. uh, because uh, Patriarch Tikhon was imprisoned in 1923 and emerged from prison declaring his loyalty to the Soviet states, uh, as, as all his successors did. Mm. Uh, so in a, sense, um, in a sense, that happened much earlier, uh, although, of course, there was always the possibility of resistance uh, outside the top church hierarchy in the villages, for example. So let's uh, move on past the war and Stalin's death, which is also a huge sort of ritualistic um, performance. But to the to the fifties and sixties, when there seems to be a lot of evidence around that God is really dead, and I'm I'm thinking of Yuri Gagarin's flight in, into outer space and some of the later illustrations in your book that um, combines space exploration with anti-religious uh, philosophy. Space imagery is a big part of the anti-religious graphics of the later period, uh, but it has roots in the earlier period. So, for example, there are images related to aviation uh, mm. and storming the heavens through aviation, uh, even during the 1920s. And I believe in the 1930s, the Soviet pilot Shikalov had said something about how he had never seen uh, God or angels uh, in the sky. Uh, so, in a sense, the space imagery carries forth the the already existing uh, uh, Soviet and communistic idea uh, of storming the heavens, mm-hmm. uh, and some of those ideas are are repeated in the space propaganda uh, with uh, with the idea that the Soviet cosmonauts uh, don't see any deities in space. I mean, I think this also kind of speaks to a almost a medieval conception of, of the firmament. Um, you know, if we think of the state that, that Russia was in at the time of revolution, uh, poor agrarian, 
uh, illiterate. I mean, in many ways, uh, that revolution happened in a country that was still in the Middle Ages. And I think that uh, a lot of the space propaganda speaks to a quasi-medieval conception of what's up above us. Mm. That's really interesting because a, a number of these um, number of these illustrations really kind of hammer that home. Um, what is happening outside the Soviet Union during this time? I mean, uh, I think that the church has gone abroad, but also um, some of the major political figures are beginning to question um, the continued uh, intolerance of religion in the Soviet Union. Can you speak a bit about that? Well, I think in American Cold War propaganda, the phrase uh, godless communism uh, was was repeated uh, very often, and it was always something that could be held against the USSR. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's 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 quite associ- quite heavily associated with Joseph McCarthy and the Red Scare mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. Uh, but you find some interesting examples of of people you might not expect to to mention it mentioning it so for example in martin luther king's uh, letter from birmingham jail uh, he talks about how if he lived in a communist country where uh, religion was uh, suppressed by law he would he would openly advocate uh, violating anti-religious laws and of course he was framing his uh, his own participation in the, the civil rights struggle uh, in a way that Americans of the Cold War era uh, might be receptive to, uh, and then in 1975, as part of the the, de- the detente process between uh, the U.S. and its Western allies and uh, the Soviet Union, um, the Soviet Union is caused to agree to uh, an article in in, in a wide ranging security agreement called uh, which is called the Helsinki Final Act. Uh, which, uh, in which it recognizes uh, freedom of religion, among others. And uh, the Soviet dissidents make uh, great use of the fact that the Soviet Union has, uh, has signed up to an agreement honoring freedom of religion. Mm. And that kind of brings us into the 80s and then the demise of the Soviet Union and also the moment when, as I said at the beginning of the interview, this uh, campaign kind of runs out of steam. And I was intrigued to read in the book that, that you kind of see Chernobyl as, as a moment when regular citizens see a kind of apocalyptic uh, aspect to the explosion of the reactor. I think many of our listeners will have seen the wonderful television um, series about Chernobyl. And it does have kind of that biblical uh, idea of a, of, the end of the world. Can you put it into context for us with the anti-religious campaign um, and how the eighties begin to um, bring the whole campaign to its, to its logical end? Yeah. Well, it seems to me that Chernobyl was uh, a religious event because Mm -hmm. in part because of its proximity to, uh, to Kiev uh, Ah. where, where ancient Rus was baptized and uh, Chernobyl's, um, uh, very close to the Dnieper River, in which in which the Rus were baptized, and uh, if you read, for example, Svetlana Alexeyevich's book Chernobyl Prayer, uh, which is an oral history of Chernobyl, uh, she encounters uh, 
Chernobyl survivors who are very keen to talk about religion and the book of Revelation um, and or the book of Revelations and uh, and and to draw a kind of uh, linguistic parallel between the star called Wormwood in the book of Revelations and uh, the meaning of Chernobyl in Ukrainian, which is Wormwood. Mm. And it also talks about the waters being made bitter. So these waters that are uh, potentially contaminated and um, and also were used to baptize the Ruth nearly a thousand years earlier. Uh, it, it feeds into a whole other kind of millenarianism. Mm. That's fascinating. Um, and and take us to the, through as well Gorbachev's kind of very public rapprochement with the church in the wake of Chernobyl, just in time for what has to have been a very awkward um, celebration of the millennium of Vladimir's baptism in 1988. Yeah, well, of course, the Communist Party must have known that 1988, the the thousand year anniversary of the baptism of Rus was coming. And uh, I don't know how long they were planning for it. I think that's a, a project for a, a scholar in itself to try and figure out uh, how early on they began uh, planning for this significant religious event and, uh, you know, whether they wanted to challenge it or they wanted to co-opt it. Um, but, you know, in the years running up to 1988, uh, there was obviously an opening up in in the Soviet press. Uh, that was that was Glasnost. That was partly a, a reaction to the Chernobyl disaster and the kind of closed society which had led to the Chernobyl disaster. And a big part of that was uh, uh, was a, a new discussion of religion, uh, for example, as it's as it's represented in literature, as it was understood in society. Uh, so, for example, uh, Chinggis Aitmatov had published a novel called uh, something like Place of the Scaffold or Place of the Skull, mm. uh, which was about um, a protagonist stuck between the, the dual orthodoxies of, uh, of, a, as a, of a subservient uh, Russian Orthodox Church and, and the Communist Party. Uh, that was widely debated in the, in the press because he used all kinds of religious symbolism in that novel. And um, and then at the end of 1986, the Chernobyl year, uh, Yevgeny Yevtushenko publishes an article in Komsomolskaya Pravda called uh, Religion as a Part of Culture. And he talks about how the Russian youth are basically uncultured. They can only kind of bluff their way through literary references, literary allusion, and that at the root of this is their lack of understanding of this great cultural monument, which is the Bible. And he mm. says, how, how can you even be a, a proper atheist if you don't understand the Bible? How can you understand Pushkin, uh, Gogol, uh, sorry, how can you understand, uh, how can you understand uh, Gogol, Dostoevsky, uh, Tolstoy, and uh you know, Yevtushenko had a reputation as something like uh, an official dissident, someone who moved when the party was willing to move on something, mm-hmm. and um, and so that was that was a, a curtain raiser of sorts on a a new dispensation for religious believers in the USSR, and and uh, and that prefaced the the millennium celebrations, uh, as did uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's uh, meeting with the. Uh, meeting with uh, uh, some of the top clergy 
1988, which was the first uh, since uh, the first such meeting since uh, Stalin's in 1943. Mm. Mm. And so at that point, I think we can say that the um, anti-religious campaign it sort of ends. And I would I would go on a limb and say it's definitely over uh, today. The Russian Orthodox Church uh, is back where it um, usually was uh, in pre-revolutionary Russia. Um, the patriarch weighs in on all kinds of political issues, uh, very close uh in tandem with Vladimir Putin. Um, There are all kinds of very public uh, celebrations of religious events. But I still sense this this thing that Yevtushenko touched on, which is the the kind of ignorance of real liturgical uh, themes and a deeper understanding of the tenets of Christianity, although everyone has has returned to um, very visual, very very public... um, faithfulness uh, to the church. Can you speak a little bit about the uh, the role of religion in today's Russia? Well, I think the lack of familiarity with the particulars of, of religious text or dogma is probably universal where, religious, where religion is concerned. Hmm. Um, what strikes me is the very strong reactions you can witness to uh, anything which is seen as uh, blasphemous or hostile to religion, um, the state will, will tend to overreact, whether it's, uh, whether it's Pussy Riot's stunt in the Church of Christ the Savior or whether it's uh, someone uh, filming themselves playing uh, Pokemon Go in a church. <laughs> uh, and I think, I think this kind of half-digested memory of anti-religious trauma is, is, is connected with that. And have you been following the story in the news about the shaman who is walking across Russia to, um, to exercise Putin? Well, shamans are very dangerous. You can't be too careful. Uh-huh. I think it's an interesting story. Um, I think he's get, garnered a lot of sympathy um, from regular people, as have um, some church leaders who, uh, over the course of the summer when there were protests, who have been rather brave to um, say that the protesters should be uh, treated more humanely. Uh, by the authorities. Well, that's an interesting thing about the the Russian Orthodox Church. You always see the part of the church which is close to the state, and you also see uh, those clergy who are willing to dissent, and and that was certainly the case in the in the Soviet uh, period as well, with people like um, uh, Gleb Yakunin and uh, Alexander Men who were willing to challenge the the status quo, particularly under Brezhnev. What do you think the future holds for um, the Russian Orthodox Church? Do you think we can look forward to another backlash or um, another thousand years of proximity to the state? I dare not say. (laughs) Well, I think we better just leave it there. Um, (laughs) Roland, that's about all we have time for today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I hope that listeners will... um, Pick up Godless Utopia. It's a fascinating book. It's a very visually beautiful book. Um, Before we let you go, Roland, where can listeners find you and pick up a copy of the book? Uh, The book is available in uh, any bookshop worth its salt. And uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Roland E. Brown, uh, websites uh, RolandElliotBrown.com. And uh, there's also a Facebook page for Godless Utopia. Uh, If you just look up Godless Utopia on Facebook, you'll find it. 
Excellent. Well, we'll certainly reference all of those in the show notes. Uh, I want to remind listeners that we've been speaking with Roland Elliott Brown about his new book, Godless Utopia, Soviet Anti-Religious Propaganda, and it's published by Fuel, and it's out this month. Uh, I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremieva. Thank you for tuning in today, and I will see you again soon for another interview about a new book with its author. <laughs>